This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're looking at verses 4 through 8 this morning. It's page 1014 in the Pew Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Hear the word of God. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open to our eyes and our minds, our hearts this morning, the teaching of your holy word. We thank you for this passage. Father, we ask that you would guide us into a good understanding of it, an accurate understanding of it, and not just in our heads, but in our hearts and to see ourselves, Lord, as your text here in Scripture speaks to us today. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A good teacher knows that repetition is important, whether it's being exposed to a new idea repeatedly or practicing a new skill until proficiency is attained. I can remember as a child, we caught some fish out in the Gulf of Mexico, and we were filleting them at the end of the day, and my father was deftly, you know, slicing the fish, filleting perfect fillets, nothing wasted. Meanwhile, I was hacking the poor fish, uh, basically butchering the thing in my efforts to fillet it, and expressing frustration uh, with my efforts. Uh, my father heard that, and he replied to me, Cleaning fish is like surgery. It gets easier after the first thousand times. I'm not sure I ever filleted that many fish, so I'm not sure that I got to that level of, uh, of proficiency. But uh, the same thing is true in, is in skills uh, as in learning ideas. A good teacher knows that repetition is important in being exposed to an idea, but a really good teacher does it in such a way you don't, feel like it's repetitive or redundant over and over. Well, the scriptures teach us about the nature of the church over and over 
and over again, because it is that important for us to understand it. However, being the good teacher that the scriptures are, they do it in such a way that it doesn't really seem repetitive. And one of the ways that the scriptures teach over and over without becoming, or at least seeming repetitive, is by using different metaphors, different pictures for the church. And you're familiar with some of them. Think, for example, uh, a very prominent one is the idea of the church as the bride of Christ. And that image goes back into the Old Testament where God's people are in a covenant relationship with him. And when they violate that covenant relationship, the Lord likens that relationship to a marriage. And Israel is being unfaithful to her covenant husband, the Lord. So that image comes from the Old Testament, but we also see it in the New. Of course, Ephesians 5, Paul takes that image and and uses it to illustrate the relationship of Christians and the Lord Jesus. Uh, Another image that we find in Scripture that helps us understand the nature of the church is, is the metaphor or the image of a body. Paul, of course, likens the church to a body, a human body that's made up of all kinds of different parts, uh, some are more prominent or obvious or, 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 or well-known than others, but all of the parts are necessary and all essential in causing the body to function and, and, and carry out its duties the way that it should. And so it is in the church. Every person in the church is important to the church as a whole and necessary to the right and healthy functioning of the body, which is the church. Well, today, uh, Peter uses a metaphor for the people of God that we find throughout the scriptures. Uh, also, uh, as we've seen, going back into the Old Testament. And that is the, the image of the church as a house, just, a, just a, a, an ordinary house. And it's the picture that he uses here. But as he talks about it in that sense, he develops it. He sort of uh, takes the different aspects of the house and uses it to illustrate who we are as Christians within the church. So think here of the church as a house, and Peter has a number of things to say about that house. When we talk about the the house that is the church, Peter says in the first place that the cornerstone of that house is, of course, Christ himself. Christ is the cornerstone. Look at verse 4. Peter says, As you come to him, that is the Lord, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You see, Christ is the cornerstone or the foundation of the house. The image is a little bit fluid. Uh, The idea of the cornerstone being the the beginning or the the, the start of the foundation, uh, an important, a significant uh, stone. Sometimes things would be buried under it. Uh, in in uh, in the Old Testament, among some of the uh, neighboring nations of Israel, they would uh, they in fact sometimes would offer sacrifices and bury the remains under the cornerstone as a way of of indicating the importance of this new building and their desire for its success and so forth. Well, Christ, of course, himself sacrificed himself on the cross, but uh, he is the cornerstone, the foundation. And notice what Peter says about him here uh, in verse six. He quotes from the Old Testament, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, it's worth noting that that cornerstone idea occurs uh, in the Old Testament in Psalm 118, which Mike read earlier. It also occurs in Isaiah 8 and in Isaiah 28. All three of those passages are referred to by Peter here 
in this letter. So he's drawing from all of those. And the image in the Old Testament basically is even though uh, Israel has, has wandered, even though they've been unfaithful, yet they're not going to undo the Lord's purposes, and he will lay the cornerstone of a new covenant people, a, a restored people. And of course, we know that that cornerstone is Christ. Although, even then, they tended to see the cornerstone as being the Messiah. You know, we, we see it more clearly than they did, but the cornerstone as the Messiah. And notice what Peter says about him. He says he's a living stone. Why? Well, he's living by virtue of his resurrection. Jesus was killed. He was, he was, he was executed. He was murdered on the cross. And yet he was raised on the third day. He is not a dead stone. We don't just build a church on the memory of Jesus. He is a living stone. He is alive now. He is the foundation of the church now because of his death and resurrection. Without Jesus, there would be no church. But because of his death and resurrection, he is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. And he is a living stone. Now notice what Peter says. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, we read earlier from Acts chapter 5, as Mike read the New Testament reading, and Peter is there preaching Jesus, and I chose that passage uh, because it's Peter himself who, in this, in this public preaching of Jesus there in Acts, speaks of Jesus as the cornerstone. He is the stone the builders rejected, but God has made him the cornerstone. And Peter, obviously, that was an important idea to him because he's, he's dwelling on it here in this, in, in this letter that bears his name. So we see him referring to it in his preaching in Acts. We see him referring to it here that Jesus was rejected by men. Yeah, I mean, Peter would, would point blank say to the Jewish leaders, this Jesus whom you rejected, God has raised up. You know, see, what they regarded as worthless, God had a different opinion of, that Jesus was his chosen redeemer. Uh, in fact, in chapter 1, Peter has already referred to Jesus as foreknown before the foundation of the world. And he's precious in God's sight. The word has to do with something of value. Something that you would treasure, something esteemed. You know, in man's opinion, Jesus was worthy of, of rejection and death. But in God's opinion, Jesus was chosen to be the Messiah, to be the Savior. He was the Son of God, and He's, he's valuable. He is precious to, to God. He's precious to His Father. And so, as Peter's talking about the church as a house, the first thing we need to recognize is that Jesus Himself, Christ Himself, is the cornerstone of that house. And he mentions that in verse 4. But then he goes on quickly to talk about the structure of that house built on the cornerstone, raised up on the foundation. The, the, the building of the house, the structure of it, is Christians. Kind of an awkward way to put it, but that's, that's the picture. We are what is being built on that foundation that is Jesus. Look at verse 5. Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, notice what he says about Jesus. Jesus is a living stone. Okay? We know stones aren't living. He's obviously not talking about something literal here. But Jesus, as the foundation of the church, is alive. He is living. Well, so are we. We are, as he says, also living stones. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. 
Each one of us is like a cut stone, or to put it more in modern terms, maybe a brick, that the Lord uses to build the house that is the church. Now, we too are living because we have, as Paul says, died with Christ and have been raised up to new life in him. You and I as Christians live out of Christ's resurrection power. I've said before, say now, we'll say again, that is the, the, the primary thing that distinguishes Christianity from moralism. And so many people think Christianity is moralism. Just be good. You need to be good. If you're good enough, maybe God will let you into heaven. No. We are not just trying to be good. We are transformed by our union with a, with a crucified and resurrected Savior. So that Paul can say of the Christian, you are a new creation. You are not who you once were. You have been changed. You've been transformed. You can't help but live differently if you are in Christ, if you have been given this new life. And so we have this life in Christ. By our union with him through the Holy Spirit, we died with him. We've been raised up with him. Uh, We are a changed and different person. And therefore, Peter can say, you too are living stones. You're no longer dead in your transgressions and sins, but you are a living stone. Now, that says a lot. Because one brick does not a building make, right? I don't know how many bricks there are just in this building alone, uh, but a lot. But all those bricks are needed to build up this building. Bricks by themselves might have some small purpose or two, but, but really they're supposed to work together. They go together. You have to put the stones, you have to put the bricks together to, to accomplish what they were designed to accomplish. And so it is in the church. You know, one, one living stone does not make the church. You're not the church on your own. You are part of a house, to use the metaphor that is here, or part of the body, or part of the bride, you know, to use the other, the other pictures. So these living stones have to work together. They function together to form the house that is the church. <clears throat> you know, Paul is, uses the same idea with the parts of the body, as we mentioned earlier. By the way, sort of an aside, you remember in, in our study of Matthew, and you know the passage uh, where uh, Peter confesses Jesus in Matthew 16, and, and Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, you are a rock, and on this rock I will build my church, a much debated passage. And the idea coming out that somehow, uh, as, as some would hold, Peter is that rock, and Peter is the foundation of the church, and head of the church, and so forth. Well, if, if Peter was ever going to make some claim to that or to speak to that, this would be the place to do it. But Peter does not mention himself in any way as a cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. If anything, Peter merely claims to be one more living stone in the house that is the church. Peter does not claim any preeminence for himself here. Uh, he, is, he is a living stone, among other living stones, built on the cornerstone that is Christ Jesus. Well, notice also it's being built up. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. A couple of things to note there. That's passive. We living stones don't build ourselves up. You know, you get there and I'll stand on top of you and, I, you know, you stand on top of me and we'll build ourselves up. No. Bricks don't build themselves into a building. The, the brick mason has to take and, and lay those very carefully. They are being built into a building. Well, so it is with us living stones. It's a passive thing. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church. 
And he is. That you were here today, that you were in Christ, is not primarily your doing, it's his doing. And that you're part of this congregation is his doing. As he builds this part of his church, uh, or, or for believers or wherever they might be. But notice it's passive. You are being built into a house. Who's the one doing it? Well, the Lord Jesus, who is building his church. But also notice it's ongoing. You are being built. He doesn't say you were built into a house. You were being built. In other words, it's still a work in progress. There are still living stones being, being, uh, being brought in and added to the house that is the church. It's passive. You're being built up. It's ongoing. It's not yet complete. This is still a work in progress as the Lord Jesus is building his church. Notice also Peter says of us that we are a spiritual house. Now, we didn't think he was talking about a literal house at this point, but it's worth noting, as he says, he points out we are a spiritual house. He is speaking metaphorically, but he is speaking about something very real. The church is a very real Thing. And there are other reference to this, references to this, um, notably Hebrews 3, where uh, Jesus is, is comparing, or, or the writer of the Hebrews is comparing Jesus with Moses. You know, Moses was a servant in the house. What house? Well, the house of God's people, where Jesus is a son, and therefore over the house. Uh, in, in Hebrews 3, uh, verse Five, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So it is a spiritual house. It wasn't always the case. Remember in the Old Testament, the house of God was a temple, was a first a tabernacle. You know, with a frame and an animal skin covering and tent-like worship structure. And then later, Solomon's temple, this actually uh, you know, permanent building there in Jerusalem, that, that was the house of God. You know, they had the Holy of Holies. That's, that's what was signified and, and in a way was the presence of God in the midst of his people. And then, of course, God was present in the temple of Jesus himself. Remember, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, he wasn't speaking of the temple, then Herod's temple. He was speaking of his body. Destroy this temple, this body in which God dwells in the flesh. But now God dwells in and with his people. You see, what the temple was in the Old Testament, in a sense, what Jesus was in the Gospels, you and I are now. We are the dwelling place of God on earth. Let me give you a couple references, uh, both in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> Paul's been talking a great deal about the church in these first three chapters. And then he says to the Corinthians, Do you not know, this is 3.16, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple? You all, plural, you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. You, the church in Corinth, are the temple of God. God's Spirit dwells in you. Now, that's true individually, as Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 6 to say, he says, do you not know, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit 
within you whom you have from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. God has purchased you with the blood of Christ. You belong to him. And your body, your body, individual believer, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we put these two together, and what we see is that as individual Christians, the Holy Spirit dwells with us and within us. Every Christian is given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come to empower us to follow Christ, to convict us of sin. But as Paul says, you as a whole, the church, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, in your midst, with you, so that as a church, you are the temple of the Lord. A spiritual temple, no longer this, this structure like they had in the Old Testament. You are the temple. You are the dwelling place of God on earth. That's a staggering thing to think about. He says you are a spiritual uh, temple, a spiritual house. Now, notice, we want to skip down to verses 7 and 8. This is a specifically and distinctly Christian house. We're not saying everybody in the world is you know, the, the, the temple of God and God's just with everybody. Peter makes a very sharp distinction. Look at verse 7. He says, so the honor, this honor of, of being the dwelling place of God, is for you who believe. Notice, whoever the verse before that, whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. You know, you're never going to find yourself to be the loser for having put your confidence in Christ. It's just the opposite. The honor, not shame, far from it, the honor is for you who believe. Because you are identified with the winner. You are identified with the one who is triumphant. You are the one, you're identified with the one who has the ultimate victory. You're on the winning side. The world may laugh at Jesus. The world may reject Jesus and reject you with Jesus as it did some of these very people Peter was writing to. But Peter says, look, they may reject him, they may reject you, but if you put your trust in him, you'll never be ashamed. And in fact, the honor is for you who believe. What about those who don't believe? Again, verse 7, for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Yeah, they rejected him, but they sided with the losing team because the one they rejected was the winner. It's like throwing in your lot with the candidate who loses the election. No spoils for you, right? You pulled for the opponent who lost. The winner is not going to reward you for that. Well, they rejected Jesus, but he became the cornerstone. He became the very center, the very foundation of the people of God. Oops. <laughs> they rejected him, but he was the winner. They sided with the loser. And, verse 8, he is not just a cornerstone of the church, but he is, for those who reject him, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He causes problems for them. They can't get over him. They stumble on him. He offends them. They stumble, Peter says, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Well, that's one of those statements you wish Peter had elaborated a bit more on. Uh, he doesn't. He merely makes the point, uh, simply a, a glancing reference to God's sovereignty and saving whom he will, showing mercy on whom he will have mercy and withholding mercy from those whom he chooses to withhold mercy. Uh, but Peter recognizes that. Uh, he says they reject Jesus as they were destined to do. Remember, Jesus said of some of the Jewish leaders, you are not 
you don't hear my voice because you were not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, they respond, but you are not my sheep, therefore you don't hear my voice. Well, that's that's all Peter says about it here, but the, the main point is they stumble because they disobey the word. They reject Christ. And even in, in their rejecting him, they may not see it, but the fact is that they have sided with the losing team, and the one whom they rejected has become the victor. He's become the cornerstone. The new people of God are founded on him. So this is a distinctly Christian house. And there may be outside that house even now those who reject the cornerstone who, in God's grace, may become believers in Christ, just like Saul of Tarsus did. They voted least likely to become a Christian. But he did in the grace of God, and he became one of those living stones that's added to, to the church. Uh, there are others out there who reject Christ, who may one day be added to the church as living stones, but there are others who will reject and fight against Christ and scorn and reject him until the day they die and pass into eternal perdition, which Peter says they were, they were destined to do. So it is a distinct Christian house. So the cornerstone is Christ. The structure built on Christ are Christians, made up of Christians, living stones, but then the third, the purpose of the house, is what? It's worship. Look at verse 5 again, the second part of the verse. Uh, you're being built up, he says, in a spiritual house to do what? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Peter pulls a fast one on us and immediately switches the metaphor. We're a house. We have a cornerstone. We're living stones But we're not just the bricks making up the house. We are the occupants of the house. We are the priesthood inside that temple. So he immediately changes us from being the living stones that it's built with to being the priests who function on the inside, who who work within the temple. Uh, We've gone from being the stones to the priesthood. But that's important, too, for understanding our purpose because the metaphor is not absolute. Peter uses it to illustrate his, his points. But it's true that not only are Christians the living stones who make up the house that is the church, but we are also, as he'll go on to say, Lord willing, we'll look at next time, we are a royal priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests in the house that is the church. Now, we are a holy priesthood. You you know, of course, from the Old Testament, the whole system of the priests uh, who functioned in various ways. And you think, well, the priests, what did they do? Well, they, they would intercede. They were the go-betweens between God and man. They were the mediators between God and man. Uh, well, well, now Christ is the great high priest. Christ is the mediator. We need him to go before God, uh, but we can come to Jesus. He is our priest. But there was a significant function of the priests in the Old Testament that remains to us. The priests would offer up sacrifices to God. Now, we don't do that because Christ himself was the sacrifice. But there are still sacrifices to be offered up. Notice what he says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So they're spiritual, not animals, but spiritual sacrifices. What would some of them be? Well, the scriptures give us some hints, give us some clues. One spiritual sacrifice would be to offer up our own bodies. Romans 12.1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
So by offering up to God our bodies, to his use, to his service. Hebrews 13.15 tells us that uh, part of this sacrifice that we as the priesthood of God offer up is that of praise. Uh, Hebrews 13.15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So by offering our bodies, by offering up praise to God, when we sing praise to him, we are doing this priestly function of offering up a sacrifice of praise. Acts of love and service. Philippians 4.18. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What was it? Well, it was their generous gifts to help support Paul. And Paul says that's like a sacrifice of praise to God. So acts of love, acts of service. Uh, Hebrews thirteen sixteen again, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So again, acts of love, acts of mercy uh, done out of love for Christ and love for his people is, an, is itself an act of worship, offering up a sacrifice to God. But in short, we could say basically all that we are, all that we do, is to be offered up to God as a sacrifice of, of praise, of service, of love, whatever it might be. All that we are goes into the, the spiritual sacrifices that, notice, are acceptable to God in, through, Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Again, a distinctly Christian house, a distinctly Christian priesthood. We're not saying all roads just lead to God, no matter where you go, how you get there. They're acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. When we come to the Lord privately in prayer, when we gather before the Lord in in corporate public worship, we come in the name of and through the merit, the death and, and righteousness of Jesus. Because remember, we may be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices, but he's the great high priest. He's the one who has opened up the way for us into the presence of the Lord. And as we offer these sacrifices, they're not acceptable in and of ourselves. They are acceptable to God as we offer them through the Lord Jesus Christ. We speak of this being the church, Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church. Well, I'm going over to the church. Uh, and that's, that's okay. I mean, it's proper. We know what we're talking about. Uh, but we do need to remind ourselves, strictly speaking, this is not the church, this, this, this literal building that we are in. You are. You are the church. You are the temple of God. You are the dwelling place of God here on this earth. Christ is our cornerstone. And we as living stones are being built up into the house that is the church of our Lord Jesus. And we are the priests who function in the church to offer up praises, spiritual sacrifices to God. And God is present with us and present in our midst. But I want you to notice something. It occurs in the very first words, but we saved it to the last because I want to come back to it. The very beginning of verse 4. Notice how all this occurs. As you come to him, these things happen. As you come to him, who is the cornerstone, you are being like living stones built up. You see, until you come to Christ, none of this is true. 
For some of you, it may be you need to come and believe in Christ and follow him for the first time. Otherwise, you're not a living stone. You're just a dead brick, spiritually speaking. Uh, But you may need to come to Christ and to trust in him and to follow him and let him make you one of those living stones in his church. But for others of you who have believed, coming to Christ is not a one-time thing. It's 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 something that we do daily, hourly, moment by moment, consciously living before the face of our Lord Jesus, coming to him, looking to him, drawing to him and close to him in in the word of God and in prayer uh, and in worship and in life, whatever we're doing, doing to the glory of God. Because notice what Peter has already said in the, the first three verses that we looked at last time, that as Christians, we have drunk of this pure spiritual milk. We have tasted that the Lord is good. And so as we come to him, hungering for that spiritual milk, tasting that the Lord is good, he is building us into a house, into a temple for the worship and the service of God. Sometimes that house doesn't look like a whole lot here on earth. But remember, it's not finished yet. We may occasionally catch glimpses of its honor here on earth, of its glory here on earth. But you know that the true honor, the true glory of that temple, of the church, will not be seen until the last day. Then we will see that glorious house. Then we will see that superb body. Then we will see that radiant bride as Christ has perfected her in all her beauty. A healthy body. A magnificent house. When it is finally and when it is forever complete. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we are but living stones in your house. But Father, as living stones, we pray that you would use us individually and certainly together, building up your house, to function as your church, to offer you praise, to bear testimony to your grace in the world. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that ultimately it's not man, it's not the pastor or the elders, it's not missionaries who are building this house. It is you, Lord Jesus. It is you who are building your kingdom, you who are raising up this house. And Lord, we pray that you would use us in however way you can to accomplish that until that last living stone is put in place, until that house is complete and we are in glory forever. Lord Jesus, until then, help us to offer up to you those spiritual sacrifices, not just on Sunday, but every day, that you would have us to offer up and all to the glory of Christ, our cornerstone. We pray it in his name. Amen.